Welcome to another Chills with TFC session. In this series, we hope to bring on interesting, relevant people to help us better learn from various perspectives. Life is not always about learning from people that you already agree with. Perspectives shaped around the thinkers so or in our pursuit of the life we love while managing our finances. Well, our guest for today runs Singapore's first fee-only financial planning firm. You probably have already heard of him, like he's very popular, lah, huh? but we got him on to go head on into the practices in the financial planning space, how to get more value out of financial planning for yourself, and honest opinions on some products in the space. So yep, welcome, Mr. Christopher Tan from Providence. Like what you guys are doing in the financial field is it's interesting, right? Because the whole like fee based only yeah. kind of thing, yeah. right? So I'm it's sad that we are still unique, honestly, <laughs> after 20 years. <laughs> exactly, right? So the whole fee based, uh, you know, what do you call that? Like the fee based financial planning, um, even from reading your blog, there were differences, right? Mm. Like commission based, fee based, and fee, fee only, only. And, yeah. and it's like in. I don't know, man, just f being in finance or being in personal finance for a while, it just feels like every term has a slight, has a like slight, seems like slight There's difference, but it's a lot of difference. <laughs> right? It's like just change a little bit only, but it's like a world of difference there. Right? So, can, can you just kind of help me understand what is the yeah. difference? So, actually, I mean, these three terms, they are only familiar to people in the industry, right? Consumers, they will not hear much about it. Right? So, commission based, I think everybody knows what commission based is. Well, basically, you go to, say, a financial advisor and the person say that, you know, I'm going to advise you for quote unquote free. But it can't be. <laughs> there is no free lunch, right, mm -hmm, out there. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, these people have to be paid somehow. Lah. So, how are they paid? They only get paid when a product is transacted. And because of that product transaction, they are paid a commission, right? Sometimes consumers think about it's fine, what? You know, I don't pay the commissions. It's the product manufacturer, the, the, the company that pays the commission. No, it's not true. You pay the commission, right? So, like when you buy an insurance policy, the financial advisors, uh, they get a cut of your first year, second year, third year premium. It comes from you, right? Because otherwise, 100% of your premium will so called be invested. But no, they take a cut. So that's commission-based, simple. Everybody understand that. Um, the other extreme is actually us. We are fee-only. Fee-only means that we don't take commissions at all, zero, right? So the client is the one that actually pay us for the work uh, that is to be done. And if there are any product transactions and as a result of that, if there are commissions, they are paid, we rebate the commissions back to the client 100%. We try to look for products that has no commission, so that's easy. But if there are, then we rebate the commissions 100% uh, to the client. So that's fee only. And then there is the in-between, which is fee-based. Fee-based means I charge you a fee, and if you transact the product, I get the commission as well. Mm. Now, fee-based advisor can say that I charge you a fee, okay? and if you buy lots of products from us, I waive the fee. So these are the three models and uh, there are problems associated with these models because the commission base obviously has the greatest conflict of interest. Um, the fee only has the least conflict of interest. Fee base is kind of like an in-between. Mm. Yeah. Don't you find that fee base can be even more conflict of it interest? Can <laughs> it feels like it feels like, you know, um, yeah man, it feels like it can be even worse. 
You are absolutely right. Uh, it can be. I used to write a newspaper article and I, I, I said that the fee-based uh, model is the I really actually want to sell you the product model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I really want to. Right? So uh, usually for the fee-based model, the fee is very low. Mm. They charge you like $100, $150, you know. Um, but I actually really want to sell you the product. And if I get you to the, buy the product, I'll tell you that I'll waive the fee. But that's because the commission can be a few thousand bucks. Damn. Yeah. Okay, okay. So that, there's going to be a lot of juice coming out. <laughs> right, we're going to talk about all these. Now, then why did you guys choose to go towards the fee only? And it's amazing how, how you are still, quote unquote, a unique guys, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, uh, well, I hope I can be so noble to say that, well, it's because of the client interest 100%. Well, Initially, I'll say it wasn't. Initially, the whole motivation behind was that we wanted to be unique. We wanted to differentiate ourselves. So we decided to go 100% fee. And I thought it was a fantastic model. I mean, or I, I, I thought that, you know, uh, people will understand this model and then I will, have a lo- I will have a long queue outside my door, everybody looking uh, for us to do business with them. But unfortunately, that was not how we started. It was really tough because people didn't understand what, are paying a fee means. They didn't understand that when they pay commissions, it's really from them. But then, in the first year, we started getting a lot more traction over the months. More and more people came. And when people came, they actually told us that, you know, I really like you guys doing this model. Um, I read your story. I like your story. You know, I believe in you. And then after all, I realized that, oh my goodness, um, we were like getting a lot of clients who actually placed a lot of trust in us. And then it became a calling. So it didn't start, it didn't start like that. Uh, it started with us just wanting to be unique. But after a while, we realized that, hey, this is not funny because actually people come and they actually really trust you. They give us their hard-earned money to manage. They say they like us and trust us because we are conflict-free. Um, yeah, so I'll say maybe six months, 12 months into starting the business, we... Um, we realized that it became a passion, it became a calling. Yeah, we felt that this is the best way to actually give uh, financial advice. Mm. So yeah. when you say conflict-free, mm. you're actually coming from the ground of like, you know, you guys prioritizing other people, like your client's interests. Yeah, I mean, absolutely right. Because, I mean, if the financial advisors, they are paid by commission, I'm not saying that all commission, uh, all commission-based advisors are unscrupulous, they are bad, <laughs> they cheat your money. <laughs> it's, it's not that, right? I mean, there are advisors and there are advisors. There are black sheep in every industry. But the problem with commission is that you are conflicted. You are tempted. You would be, right? Because... Um, if I've got product A that pays me this much commission and product B that pays me 10 times lesser, when I want to advise you, I'm conflicted, right? So, and if I yield to the temptation, I end up recommending you something that is really expensive that pays um, a lot of commission but might not be necessarily best in the interest of the client. Yeah, so that's what I mean by being conflicted. Whereas for fee, I charge you a flat fee I don't care what products you buy, if you need to buy, if you don't need to buy, I don't even want to sell you because I'm not making a cent out from it. But if you really need to buy and you buy it, I'll give you back the commissions if there is. And so that you know, it's nothing to do with the product having a very high commission. Mm. It's just purely because this is what is best for you. 
Mm, okay. Yeah. And and in that sense, do you guys objectively make less uh, per deal? Yes, definitely more. Uh, definitely a, a lot less, uh, especially the initial years. Um, it was very tough. I'm just give you an example, right? Um, if you come to me and let's say uh, you buy an insurance product that is $5,000 premiums, I will make $5,000 commission if I'm commission-based from you. Maybe not over one year, but maybe over three to six years, depending on how the product is structured. But I'll pay, I will make $5,000. And the first year is the most. I can make about half of $5,000, $2,500, right? But today, if I'm a fee, and objectively, I know that a much lower premium plan is better for you, um, and I sell you a plan that gives you similar or higher coverage insurance, I may only make like $500 or even lesser mm-hmm. uh, from you, right? So just insurance alone, you can see the difference. Um, investments uh, as well, <laughs> right? So Provident, actually, we don't do a lot of insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, 85% of our revenue comes from investment. We are really more an investment firm, right? But uh, because of clients' need, we also do insurance. Uh, but investment alone, for example, if an advisor come and a lot of advisors like to sell investment link products and they charge you a front-end sales charge of 2%, well, they make that 2%, right? Yeah, but we don't, we don't charge the sales charge. So we make a lot lesser. So when you go on fee, definitely you make uh, lesser, but it is a more sustainable business model in the long run, I feel. Mm. Yeah, and we, I mean... We have been running this about 200, uh, 200, 20, 200 years. 20. <laughs> yeah. What am I thinking? <laughs> yeah. Well, that is a prophecy. We're going to run uh, this for the next 200 years. Uh, yeah, but we've been running for 20 years and now we have reached a stage whereby our income is very stable. We are managing about 500 million uh, of our clients' money. So, uh, yeah, we've gone through the tough times and it's more sustainable because when clients' interests are taken care of, uh, they reap the benefits, they stay with you longer. Yeah, and you were talking about like ILP. Yes. All right, and that, that's like, I don't know, it's quite... ILP is toxic. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't want to use the word, lah, but... <laughs> right, so... Can you just kind of help us understand like why you think ILP is toxic? Well, ILP stands for Investment Link Policy. There's absolutely no sense buying an ILP. Um, well, every premium that you pay to an insurance company, now technically this is what happened, right? Every $1 premium that you pay to an insurance company to buy an ILP, a certain percentage goes to buy the insurance portion for protection. So let's say uh, $0.10 cents is used to buy the insurance that you need. The remaining $0.90 cents get invested into Unitrust. The Unitrust can be managed by the insurance company or they outsource it to a fund manager. Now, over time, as you get older, the insurance portion actually starts to go up. But you're still paying $1 premium and therefore the investment portion starts to come down. So over time, you're actually investing lesser and lesser and lesser. Of course, there are ILPs today that are 100% for investment. That means to say zero or very little of the $1 goes to the protection. Most of the money actually go to investment. So that's how ILP is structured. So why is the ILP not so good? Well, the biggest problem I'll say is cost because ILP is very expensive. The underlying unit trust, the, the, the management fee, the total expense ratio, they're very expensive. What's the ballpark? Well, it's about close to 2%. Yeah. 
right? depending on the kind of funds. Of course, I'm talking about equity funds, which is closer to 2%. It's going to be very difficult for you to make money if your annual charges, before even you make money, is about 2%, right? So cost is one. And the second thing is this. I mean, if you really want to invest your money, why do you go through an ILP? Because if you don't like that particular fund, the only thing you can do is, okay, of course you can sell out, okay, but if you want to switch, you can only switch the funds within the insurance company. So let's say you buy from AIA, you can only switch from AIA, right? Why do you tie your hands? Exactly. When there are so many other options uh, out there, okay, they are actually better, lower cost. Why do you tie your hands with the insurance company, right? Exactly. It's like, it's like there's this fascination with like two in one, three in one, you know, like, I don't know, is it a Singaporean thing or is it like, all around kind bundle of thing. products. Yeah, it? it's like people love this idea of bundle. But when I look at it, when I buy insurance, I'm trying to pay a, pay a fixed fee to mitigate the risk. Yeah, right. Yeah, so exactly right. that is that is the interest. When I when I invest, I want to see my money compound. Right. Yes, so that's they, right. actually they have conflicting interests. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Yeah. So when you bundle two things that have conflicting interests, like pouring coke and coffee together, right? It's like it doesn't work. Very kikwaya. Yeah, <laughs> it, it doesn't work. I mean. I think consumer needs to know that whenever products are bundled, it just means it's more expensive, mm. right? Because there'll mm. be layer of fees that are, are hidden. And you know, you just uh, touched on a very important point, which is we should really separate investment with insurance. They are for different purposes, as you said. Insurance is for protection. Investment is actually for accumulation, right? And when it comes to insurance, our belief is that you really don't want to use it. It is a risk management tool. It is a contingency plan. And therefore, you should spend as little as possible on what you hope that you will not use. I always use the illustration of, say, if today, you know, if you want to renovate your house and uh, you got a $100,000 budget to renovate your house, can you imagine this? You spend $80,000 buying fire extinguishers <laughs> and then only 20000 to renovate your house, right? And then... On housewarming day, you invite your friends and your friends come and they walk around, they look at your house, it's like so badly done, you use very cheap material, you know, and they ask you, Reggie, how much do you spend on renovation? And you said, 100000 Hmm, but it doesn't look like $100,000 renovation. You say, no, wait, 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 come, let me show you. And then you bring them to the room and you open up that room and sprawling all over the floors, you see <laughs> fire extinguishers of different size, different type. And then your friends were like, why? What is this? Is it because I'm so afraid that you know the fire will consume my house, and therefore I spent eighty thousand dollars buying fire extinguisher? I mean, it's like ridiculous, right? It's just totally ridiculous <laughs> because you should have spent more money using better materials, you know, for yeah, renovation, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Nobody spent most of their money buying a, a contingency plan, mm, and mm. insurance is like that. Insurance. It's a contingency plan. So spend as little as you can on that contingency plan. Buy as much as you need so that well, if it happens, you are protected. But most of the time, it's not going to happen. Most of the time, it's not going to happen. You will be able to live a long life most of the time. And therefore, you must have enough money to save towards the eventuality. If you spend so much money buying insurance, the only way you can reach your plan is you die. Mm, you better mm. die young. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, because because I I keep hearing things like you know I I I I buy this insurance so that if something happened, then I got this lump sum that comes out. I'm like, dude, you know that that's not your main plan. Yeah. O- owning the insurance is not going to reduce your risk of getting that that thing or whatever thing, right? It's 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 the same and. 
by piling so much money in, then you are banging on yourself getting that shit, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we have to keep the main thing, the main thing, right? The main cast is actually your accumulation plan. Your yes. insurance plan is a supporting cast. It's the minor. So we must major on the major, not major on the minor. When you spend so much money buying insurance, we are majoring on the minor. Mm. Right? So I think we need to understand that. And do, do you come across... Okay, I don't know because I'm not in this space per se, but it feels like right a lot of people are overinsured, mm. broadly speaking. Mm. Right? So I don't know, based on your cumulative understanding, do you feel like Singaporeans are generally overinsured? They're buying too much insurance? Okay, so this is the thing, right? The thing is, most Singaporeans are spending too much money on insurance premiums, but they're underinsured. Uh, okay. Because they are buying very expensive whole life plans mm. that cost a lot to buy, but the coverage is actually very low. Yeah. So I've seen many senior executives, they spend like 20,000, 30,000 uh, per year on insurance policies, but they're still undercovered. So that's the situation in Singapore. I mean, it's improved over the years, but um, the fact is, and uh, don't take my word for, for it, you can actually go and Google it. Uh, MES has a survey uh, on it. Uh, most Singaporeans are still underinsured, but yet they are spending a lot of money on premiums already. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I have some friends who literally just went on, you know, the insurance platform and just buy on their own. Mm. Right, they mm. just they're routing out the yes. middleman, right, yes. and they're yes. getting much cheaper premium yes. for much more coverage. Yes. Unfortunately, the downside is that there is a limit to what you can buy from yeah. one insurer, mm. right? If my memory serves me correctly, I think the max you can buy from one insurer is like four hundred thousand. Uh, a lot of people need more than that, especially if you are just married, you have young children, you probably need about 800000 to a million dollar coverage. So you have to go like different insurer to buy. And not everyone is like your friend. They're not savvy enough because mm. you don't get advice. You go in there, you, 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 you must really decide what you want and all that. So yeah, not everybody will be able to do that on their own. And in that sense, what do you guys do to kind of help these people to be more aware in that sense. Yeah, so I mean, for our clients, so Provident, we serve mainly uh, the affluent clients. So for our clients, well, they just come. Yeah, they come. Usually when they come, they just bring their whole stack of insurance policies that they have bought over the years. And then we clean it up big time. Yeah, we take a look at it. We read every contract. We will tell them that, you know, these things, you don't need it anymore. Get rid of them. You're wasting money, right? Keep those that are still good enough. And if you are still short, we actually buy for them. Uh, we actually advocate a lot of uh, term insurance, which is pure coverage, no investment. The premium is like 10 times cheaper as compared to if you buy uh, whole life. So for clients, that's what we do. I mean, we write quite a bit uh, on media, mainstream, social media. We conduct a lot of talks to advocate mm. uh, how a person should do insurance. Yeah, so I mean, try our best, but... We cannot fight the power of the industry. Yeah, I get it. That yeah. can, for our listeners' sake, right? Could you just kind of share with us the difference between term and life? Yeah. Right, there's this endless debate out, out yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So term insurance means temporary insurance. You buy until the age that you need it or you buy until the age that you don't need it, right? For whole life, as the name implies, it just covers you whole life. Um, so that's one difference between term and whole life. The other difference between term and whole life is that term has no investment component. Uh, so you just pay for pure protection. For whole life, 
just like the ILP which I have explained earlier, for every $1 premium that you pay to the insurance company for a whole life plan, say they'll take 20, uh, 20, say they take 20 cents to go and buy the insurance that you need and the remaining 80 cents they actually invest it for you. right? Now, for those of us who have bought whole life plans, you will see all the benefit illustrations saying that, well, the projected return is between 325 to 4.75%. Now, that 325 to 4.75% is not on the $1. It is on the, in my example here, the 80 cents that the insurance company actually set aside to invest for you. And what that means is that even if the insurance company can hit 4.75%, which they don't, but even if they can <laughs> hit the 4.75% for you, you are never going to get 4.75% of the $1. You're just getting 80% of the 4.75 because only 80 cents is invested, right? So that's the whole life plan. So that's the difference between term and whole life. Yeah. There's a lot of confidence there, which they don't. Yeah, it never hits don't. the upper limit yeah, from your experience. Yeah, they don't. I mean, if you buy a whole life plan, after 20, 20, 20 over years, I've seen actual numbers. I mean, it doesn't matter what they promise you, but, well, actual numbers is that if you can get about 3% after 25 years, 30 years of buying a whole life plan, you count yourself lucky. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it's just 3%. That's already very good. Okay, so based on what you just said, right? Then there is a predominant narrative out there, you know, of selling ILPs, of selling life plans. A lot of these kind of compound products are being peddled out there, right? Bundled products, not mm. compound. Why is that the case? Well, I hate to say it, it just pays better. I didn't start uh, out in my career doing what I'm doing right now. I mean, when I first came into the industry in 1998, there was no such thing as a financial advisory industry. The financial advisory industry only came about in Singapore in October 2002 because that's when the Financial Advisors Act was um, implemented. So when I first started 1998, um, if you want to give financial advice, you either join the insurance company, the banks, or the stockbroking firm. So I chose to join uh, an insurance company. Yeah, in the first year, I was number two new advisor in the insurance company. Wow. I was very successful. I was making lots of money. Why? Because I was selling a lot of whole life plans and ILPs. So, you know, when I go out there and I tell people that don't buy whole life plan and don't buy ILP, I speak with conviction because I'm guilty of it. I have to go back to all my clients and my clients say, but you sold me that. I say, yes, I did. Yeah, but mm. that was wrong. So I spent three years in the insurance industry. By the end of the third year, just before I leave, I was top 25. Um, I was making, and that was 2001, I was making like 200,000. Wow. And that was like 20 years ago. 2021, 2001. Yeah. No? yeah, so you can imagine, even for today, 200,000 is good money, right? Yeah, can yeah, you imagine yeah. 20 years ago, that's even yeah, good, yeah. good more, right? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so I saw a lot of all these very expensive products. And back in those days, nobody sells term products. Nobody. But it was already there. It was there. It's but not, nobody sells it. Yeah, it's, I mean, you don't have so many, but it was there already. I remembered... Uh, I asked my manager, this product is actually very good. Why nobody sells it? And I always remember him telling me in half jazz that, Chris, you sell this, you're not going to be an MDRT. Right? <sighs> so nobody sells it because, well, the premium size is so small and therefore the absolute commission that you take is going to be very small. 
it's just going to be like $100, $200 commission. Whereas when you sell a whole life plan or you sign an LP, you make a few thousand dollars. Back in those days, to be a million dollar round table, you need to hit like seventy, eighty thousand dollars uh, first year commission. How are you going to hit $70,000, $80,000 first year commission if you're only selling a product that makes you $200? Very difficult. Right? So, um, so I know. I know how the industry works. <clears throat> the industry rewards advisor <clears throat> um, when they are MDRT or call the table or top of the table. You are put on the podium. Yeah. When your sales numbers are good. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't yeah. mean you're a great advisor. It doesn't right? mean you're I'm great, trying to understand this thing, yeah, right? It doesn't mean you are a great advisor at yeah. all. Just means you sell a lot. Wa. Yeah. So you are recognized that way. You go for incentive treats based on the volume of sales. Mm. Right. So if you look at the the motivation, everything is wrong. <laughs> right? Everything mm. is wrong. It's nothing to do with uh, advice. And so I'm not going to say that all advisors sell whole life and ILP and because they all want to make a lot of money. I, I, and it's back to what I said earlier. The attraction is just too strong. It's not easy to fight it. It's not just the money you make. It's the environment, right? If you are doing all the right thing but making very little and not making MDRT, nobody's going to notice you. Mm. Nobody mm. is going to come to you and say, Reggie, wow, you did a great job. Nobody is going to invite you for speeches. Nobody is going to tell you, nobody is going to ask you to talk about your success. You have no success story to tell because you're just not making the sales figures. You are not going to, you're just going to go to the airport and send your friends off for their incentive trip. You're not going to go for the incentive trips. Yeah, so it's difficult. It's, it's not that there are no good advisors. It's just, so kudos to those commission-based advisors who are actually really ethical. I salute them because it is just so tough mm to be able to go against the green. Sounds crazy, right? And when you guys are trying to do what you do, which is like fee-based, right? Fee-only. Yeah. Do you find it difficult to attract talent? Uh, difficult, very difficult. Um, over the years, uh, we have tried. Yeah. So um, we find that if you want to recruit from the industry, it's very tough because firstly, in Chinese, uh, we say they zhong du tai shen. Uh. <laughs> So suddenly to come and give up commission or that they can't take it. Right? Yeah, because they've been addicted to it. Uh. Yeah, so yeah. not easy. So we have people I mean, come... from 5,000, 2,005 to like 500. Yeah. yeah That's like a 20% Tough. commission difference. Tough. And the industry, most of the advisors out there are mostly uh, very good at insurance, but very bad in investments. Mm. And like I say, we are predominantly an investment management firm. Um we don't. We give advice and insurance, but we don't execute it. We actually refer it out to our sister company, Money Hour, to execute it. We don't make a single cent from insurance. We are mainly doing investments, right? So when we when we get all these people, they, they are weak in investment. They can't advise in investment. Mm. So you are right. It's not easy. Firstly, zhong du tai shen. Secondly, don't have the investment skills and knowledge. Thirdly, a lot of them. I would say not all, but a lot of them are serving the mass market while we serve the affluent. So not easy to be able to have that ability to serve the affluent, not everyone. When you say that the general people out there, right? Because what, you're, what I'm sensing is you're telling me that generally insurance uh, agents out there, they are more insurance focused. They're not as investment focused, yeah. right? So can I say that broadly speaking, the, the investment advice that come out from insurance agents is substandard? 
I mean, we're not trying to blanket everyone, but we're talking about pro- like probability. If some insurance agent come and give you some sort of investment advice, the tendency is there's yeah, a sales bias. I would bias. say generally speaking, yes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, of course, there are advisors out there who are strong in investments. I've not seen many. Um, <laughs> I've not seen many. I've not seen many. <laughs> Um, and, and that's also because of the limited range of products that they have, right? I mean, there are, there are many problems uh, with this, right? Now, if you say, okay, like for us, when we do investment products, we charge an annual management fee. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the annual management fee from a bond portfolio can be just, say, 0.5%, say. Yeah. So if a client invests, say, 100000 and you charge a fee of 0.5% first year. I mean, how much is that? It's 500 bucks. So now, if you, had, if you take $100,000 and you see an advisor, it is quite unlikely this guy will sell you an investment product. It is quite likely that this guy will actually recommend an insurance product because the compensation is higher. Once again, back to compensation. Back to compensation. And because of that dominant thought, right? Every day you are just doing insurance and insurance. So you end up being advisors who are probably very knowledgeable about insurance. But when it comes to investment, not so much. Because that's not your key focus. Mm. And from what I understand, right? A lot of people don't recognize. I hope you can share with us more. Like, Actually, a lot of these insurance agents that you meet, right? Or your wealth planners or whatever mm. they call themselves... They're actually resellers. They're mm. distributing from the OG company, which is the yeah. wealth manager or the original insurance company. Yeah, we call them the product manufacturer. Okay, so yeah. the product manufacturer yeah. and then there is the reseller, right? Yes. The distributor. And then from a client's viewpoint, right? Mm. How do I then manage this multifaceted interest? You know, mm. like I want to go direct, but they don't entertain me. Then mm. I go here. <laughs> so Yeah, I mean, there are many ways you can go direct nowadays. Not that there aren't. If you talk about insurance, um, you can go straight to the insurance company, which you mentioned some of your friends did. Those are called DPI products, direct purchase insurance products. The downside with that is you've got to do some Studying, right? Yeah, yourself. Not some, I think quite a lot. You've yeah. got to learn. Yeah, no advice, right? Yeah. Now, alternatively, I mean, I'm, and I have to declare I'm being biased here because I have a joint venture company called Money Hour. You can actually go to Money Hour website. They put up the, the insurance companies that they represent. Uh, you can go and compare the products up there. And if you decide to buy, there is actually an advisor that will advise you, right? Um, now, the thing is that Money Hour still take commissions. It's just that they take 50% commission. The 50% they rebate it to you. So they still take comms, but the advisors are all salaried. So you can still go direct uh, in that way. For investments, I mean, today you can go to robo-advisors if you want to go direct. Of course, you can also uh, just buy ETF from the exchange. Uh, you just set up a stockbroking account and you can just trade the ETFs uh, yourself. But... Not again, not everybody is like that, right? Because investments is not just about buying and selling. Uh, you might need advice. And in that case, then you should not go direct. But there are channels today that you can go direct. Mm. Yeah. And I think when I read your one of your articles, right, mm. about wealth managing, which is what we're talking about, right? you talk about how like wealth managers, you know, focus a lot on speculative mm. themes, mm. right? It's like, it, it, I mean, honestly, la, there's a whole media 
sector around this MSNBC, Bloomberg. Every day, yeah. every day must have some reason. One stock market mm. move, eating out your reason, right? So U.S. election, yeah, must have some reason. Mm. Cannot be just it just move law. Yeah, it's entertainment, <laughs> right? So so even in the wealth management field, you feel that there is this kind of speculative themes going on. Or? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the industry has propagated this whole belief that investment is like a gamble. And there are people out there who has a crystal ball to know how the market will move tomorrow, next week, next month, uh, next year. Um, and the whole industry is built on that. The media industry is built on that. It is. Right? Because otherwise, if every day you wake up and you turn on the financial pages and it says, uh, stay invested for the long term, don't worry about the short term. I mean, nobody's going to read, right? I mean, no sector. Right? Yeah, I mean, there's no fun. <laughs> Right, people uh, uh. like to read that. Okay, so well, the U.S. election is going to go this way. If Trump wins, it's going to be like that. If Biden wins, it's going to be like that. Mm. Well, they're going to talk about well, uh, we are going into a pandemic, you know, and the economy is going to be very bad over the next <laughs> six months or so. You know, if you hedge yourself against this by buying gold, people like that. They mm. like prediction. But what is the truth? The truth is. Evidence, and again, don't take my word for it. You can just go and Google SPIVA, S-P-I-V-A, and there are many. Evidence, scores of evidence have shown that most investors whom try to do that and beat the market, they fail. Most people actually fail to do that, right? And because of all these guessings, managers who are doing all these guessings, they charge a much higher fee. Again, it's down to compensation, Right. Whereas for managers who don't try to guess the market, they actually charge lower fees. Yeah. So again, at the end, it's compensation that drives behavior. Okay, so fundamentally, it still comes back to lower fees, you know, more longer-term strategies, and then you will just naturally perform aligned with the market. Yeah, I mean, in investing, actually, it's not rocket science uh, at all. I mean, for those people who study finance and you are listening to study finance, you understand what I'm saying, right? There is one main thing that drives the return of stock market, uh, the long-term return of the stock market, and that is earnings or profitability. What drives earnings or profitability? Demand for goods and services drives earnings. What drives demand? Population growth. So we've got to ask ourselves, is the world population growing? It is. Are there going to be demand for goods and services going forward? There will be because population growth. And simply because of that, most companies are going to be profitable. Of course, some companies will collapse. Most companies are going to be profitable. And that is why, again, again factually, you see the stock market always going up in the long run. In the short run, there will be a lot of noise. There will be a lot of irrational behavior that caused the stock market to go, at, to go up and down. But it's very hard to catch that. So if we look at the stock market uh, over the last almost 100 years, the major markets, S&P 500, uh, MSCI World Index, MSCI All World Index, Emerging Market Index, um, the longest, of course, uh, S&P, Dow Jones, the one thing remains consistent. And that is it always, always, always go up the mm. stock market. Yeah. Right. And I mean, there's a... 
indexes, there's a general fallout, right? If the companies don't perform, they will fall out. out They get kicked out of the index. Then they bring the next big company that's performing. So there's already a self-auto-correction mechanism built into indexes, right? When funds mimic that, then generally it's uptrend. Yeah, so the hardest part about this kind of investing is you've got to manage your behavior in the short term, which is not easy. Okay, so about the stock market, right? Essentially, what you're saying is... For like a better way to put it, the like everybody objectively the numbers shows, mm. right? Index investing or you know, if you use this kind of you know very long-term strategy, ultimately it builds up, mm. right? Ultimately it gets you there, right? Mm. But in the short term it's very boring. Mm. Right. And you know, young people, you know, it's it's mm. we're young, you were young before, right? You want the like you know you want some excitement. Yeah, right, excitement. I wanna right. do it faster, you know. I, that's why that's why so many people fall prey to a lot of these kind of online programs also, right? But but that's the story for another day. <laughs> it's but when we bring it back to the general theme today, right? Mm. Which is like how you know, you you wrote about it on your on your website also about like YOLO, about fire. You know, and you have quite some concerns about about these themes, and you actually call them extremes, mm. right? So I, I want to hear your thoughts, and what do you think of from a holistic financial viewpoint? Yeah, so I definitely understand YOLO, right? My son is twenty two, and my <laughs> daughter is eighteen. Oh, oh right. Okay. So, are you yeah. more concerned about young daughter? Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> okay, that's cool. That's cool, Dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I started my daughter drinking alcohol when she was in primary school. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah, so she has drank every alcohol up mm. there, all sorts. <laughs> well trained. Yeah, well trained. <laughs> and nobody can, can make her drunk, so I'm, I'm okay. Okay. Yeah, but so YOLO, right? I mean, we all know YOLO, which is you only live once. And a person who adopts this kind of ideology believes that you never know when you are going to die. So just spend, enjoy life, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow, which we do not know when it's tomorrow. Tomorrow we die. Right? Don't leave the enjoyment till much later. That is YOLO. The problem with the YOLO philosophy is that if you adopt it, what if you don't die? And you live a long time, you are not going to have enough save up for tomorrow. So that's the downside. And we all know that. Now, the other extreme, of course, is this new, not so new, but pretty new in Singapore movement called FIRE, which uh, means financial independence, retire early. Uh, it is an ideology that came from the West. Yeah. And a lot of young people, they like this. Most ideology come from the West. West. These days. YOLO as well. Right. YOLO also came from the West because yes. the Western media is so prominent. Yeah, right? so yeah. good at it. <laughs> so the oh, fire breath, ideology is, um, well, it's extreme in a way whereby totally opposite of YOLO, right? Mm. I scream and yes. I save, you know, so that I can achieve financial independence as early as 40 years old. Right, so I, I I basically deny myself from all the luxuries, you know, and all that. But again, the problem with this ideology is that, well, we think we have a contract with God. We think that we will never die, right? So, we will study very hard, work very hard, retire, enjoy life until eighty-five years old. Let's say. But life is not like that as well. Death can take you away tomorrow, you don't know. And if you overdo it and you scream and you save, then you don't get to live life today. And there are many things that are time sensitive. You cannot wait for the future to do it. Um, if you are a parent, you definitely understand what I mean, right? I mean, if you have young children, they grow up very fast. 
and monies must be used to build memories with them when you know they are still with you our parents they grow old they will die one day and sometimes we need to spend money to build memories for that living a purposeful life sometimes require money right and we cannot say that well i will wait until i'm 60 years old i'm 50 years old then i do it because we might never have a chance to do it so i think these two ideologies are extreme and i think we all need to like in all things in life we all need to have that balance Right? I mean, we need to be able to set aside a certain amount of our surpluses intentionally, doing something that is purposeful, doing something that if you die today, you at least will tell yourself you have done it. Yeah, but not overdoing it in such a way that you don't leave anything behind for the future. So then in, in the case where... You know, you think YOLO and fire extreme. Honestly, I think I think they're extremes also, right? Mm. For a short period of time, I subscribe to fire. Mm. You know, but after a while, when I when I have attained it in some ways, mm. right, and I feel like this is kind of stupid because mm. you know, there's nothing to do, right? You know, there's there's so much so much aspects of life that mm. you choose to cut mm. just so you can attain the fire. Yeah, so right. I mean, I've been there before, not fire, mm. but I have lived a life as if I was on fire, right? <laughs> what do I, <laughs> I mean, what do I mean, right? Mm. As an entrepreneur, I spent, you know, the earlier days of my uh, entrepreneurship working very, very hard. I wasn't doing it for fire, I was just doing it for the business, I was working very hard. And as a result, I didn't spend enough time with my family, with my kids. I don't like to go for holidays. You know, if I go for a holiday after five days, I, I want to come back. And even in that five days, I will bring my laptop. I'll work all the time. And I'll go for very short holidays. Uh, I won't go anywhere far. Yeah. Johor. Um, Bintan. Southeast Asian countries. Mm. Yeah. But little did I realize that actually I was depriving my children, depriving my family for spending time. Yeah. The wake up call came in 2009. Yeah. I mean, it's a long story. I won't go into telling that story. But when 2009 came, I realized that, well, actually, my kids are really growing up and I'm depriving them. Yeah, so that was the change. Yeah, and since 2009, I've been taking my family every year for a long holiday. And now that my kids are 22 and 18, the truth is they don't really like to go for holidays as much with us like before. They want to go with their friends and they have been going with their friends to Korea, you know, on their own, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, Doing all their that. Thing. Yeah, but then now when they look back, they remember these memories that uh, we have built uh, together. So I think these are important things in life and um, I think we need to know that money at the end of the day is an enabler. Um, we can have a lot of money in the bank and not happy. I'm sure people know that. Yeah, tons of people like that. Yeah, so uh, use money to enable you to live the life that you want. And life doesn't start 20 years later. Life starts today. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you talk about this thing called finishing well, mm. right? As a model that you propagate. Yeah. Right? So, you know, just kind of help us get it. You know, what does finishing well mean? Well, finishing well means that if at any point in time you are called to go home, 
you have lived out your purpose. Because go home, you mean yeah, 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 means okay. you die. Yeah, <laughs> okay. means you die. Okay, very yeah. polite. Very polite. How to go home? <laughs> or oh, last time people say when you disappear from this world, uh, uh, uh. when you die, <laughs> you have lived your purpose. It is a model that I developed. Yeah, in two o nine. Um, after going through a very difficult period of my life, whereby I was just so workaholic, just spending time working, and I developed the model to sort of like remind myself that I will not do it again. So it starts from taking time to understand what is your purpose, what do you want your purpose to be, and once you know your purpose, you align the five areas of your life to your purpose. Generally speaking, there are five broad areas of our lives. Um, the first one uh, would be your professional life, and then your family, and then if you have a faith, your spiritual life, and then if you have friends, all of us have your social life, and then we are all part of a community, so our community life. Under each category of our lives, we have roles and responsibilities uh, that goes along or that is under this category. So, for example, under family, I have the role of a father, of a husband. Uh, of a son, son-in-law, and with it are responsibilities, right? So once I know these roles and responsibilities under these areas of our life, I try and align my life to the purpose, right? Now after I've done that, I determine my goals, what I hope to achieve. I determine the activities that will help me achieve these goals. And so, if I do that, actually, every activity that I do on a daily basis, they are actually aligned to my purpose, right? So, the small little things that I do each day, when I wake up, I take care of my kid, I drive my kids to school. I'm doing it in a purposeful manner because it's aligned to my goals. The business that I'm doing, Provident, right? Every day when I'm seeing a client and I'm impacting lives, I am actually in alignment with my purpose. Right. So if I do that on a daily basis, I'm actually living my purpose. Mm. I don't have to wait until 20 years later or 30 years later to live my purpose. So that's what essentially what finishing well is all about. And if I just summarize it, it is starting from your purpose and distilling your life to the day-to-day activities that are very purposeful. Mm, okay. Yeah. So I think purpose is a it's a word that's very complicated to understand, mm. right? There's a lot of layer, a lot of textures, mm. but from what I'm getting from you, fundamentally, it's about alignment. It's about yeah. doing things that you believe in, living day to day a life that you can you can love and you you believe in, uh, yeah. right? In that sense. Yeah. Purpose is about uh, something that you hope to achieve that's more than yourself, mm. right? There's, it's, it's usually about what you want to do that will impact life outside of yourself. Right, something that you find meaningful, mm. yeah. And I think at the end of the day, we all are in search of a certain purpose. You didn't do this podcast just to make money, right? Surely something must have triggered you to want to do this podcast. Perhaps you do this podcast because you have seen enough shit happening in the industry, <laughs> and you want to go out there and tell people, yeah, yeah. right? Of course, along the way, we need to make money. Yeah, it's true, right? It's so. True. Uh, I think if we live life just making lots and lots of money, um, but it's not purposeful, and you absolutely hate it, it's not sustainable. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for sharing. Thanks Thank for coming you. on the show. I'm What's sure a lot of good juice. You know, everybody learned a lot of good stuff. Thank you. If they want to look for you, just head to provident.com. You know, money owl, yeah, all those kind of stuff. Very popular now these days, <laughs> right? So yeah. Thank you. Thanks for coming. We'll Thank see you, you around. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, Reggie.
I hope you learned something useful today and truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with Financial Coconut. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, follow us on our socials, sign up for weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description below. And if you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. Also, if you have some interesting thoughts to share and you don't know someone that you want us to talk to, reach out to us through hello at thepotentialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead. Stay tuned next week and always remember, personal finance can be chill, clear, sustainable for all. Okay, I hope you had fun listening to Chris, a very jovial, interesting person. Um, very blunt laugh, for like a better way to put it. <laughs> so I had a lot of fun talking to him and I'm sure you picked up a lot of good value while listening to our conversations, right? Next week, we have another great friend of ours, uh, Keith from Investment Mode. So it's one of the largest uh, financial... Should I call him financial planning? No, one of the largest stock uh, platform, you know, stock block platform in Singapore, right? So investmentmodes.com, you can check it out. Keith will be coming on to talk to us about this concept of do you need to invest to retire? Although he did invest, you know, like he is one of the biggest guys, you know, in the retail space, right? And yeah, so I'm going to dig his brain into that perspective. How does he see investments? How does he see retirement, stock picking and all those kind of stuff? But he did transit from an IT career. Now he's in the financial company, right? So that's going to be fun. We'll see you next week.